Welcome to the What Makes You Tick podcast. This is episode 15 and my guests today are Greg and Sarah McWilliams. This episode was a lot of fun to record. Initially, over a video call, I sat down with Greg to speak to him about his career as a rugby coach, the challenges of moving abroad to a different country, and the journey he and his wife Sarah embarked upon to bring their son Archie and daughter Lana Rose into this world. What sets this episode apart for me is when Sarah joined the conversation. She lit up the room and it was wonderful to see the way both Greg and Sarah were open and honest about how tough life can be. Sarah speaks openly about how focused she was on having babies, how she wasn't going to let eptopic pregnancies and failed IVF treatments stop her, and how surrogacy became an option. Following the challenge of having a baby, Sarah received another curveball from life and was diagnosed with breast cancer in January 2020. At that time of recording, Sarah was down to complete her final chemotherapy the following day and I'm glad to say she smashed it. Being positive and optimistic when times are good is definitely easier. It is in times of hardship and difficulty when real optimism and positivity shines through. That is the challenge and opportunity for us all. For me, listening to Sarah and Greg's story as they interact with one another painted a clear picture of a foundation cemented by understanding, communication, and an unconditional love for each other. I'm grateful for the time they've shared with me and to tell their story, and I hope this gives you the reassurance that whatever it is that you're going through today, to stay optimistic. Optimism is knowing that even though the tunnel is dark and the path may be challenging, there is light at the end of the tunnel. Stay the course, one step at a time, and you'll eventually get there. Ladies and gentlemen, Greg, and Sarah McWilliams. Welcome to the What Makes You Tick podcast, and thank you so much for, for joining me, pal. Good to have you. Thank you for having me on, Steve. It's good to see and, and catch up as well. Uh, so yeah, delight to be on. I've watched your your career and your, your uh, progression as you've, um, since you left Ireland, and it's been brilliant, and essentially why I wanted you on. So yeah, you're having a good time. Having a great time. Look, you know, we've talked a little bit. There's uh, drawbacks to everything that you undertake, particularly when you're picking up from one country and moving to another. Um, we had an opportunity, myself and Sarah, to come to America in 2014. And originally, we had planned to be here for one year, uh, maybe two, and here we are six years later. Um, some of it's by design and some of it's um, you know, we can talk later about Sarah and a couple of things that we've been through as a couple and she's been through as an individual um, that, uh, that has us where we are. But no, we're very lucky. We have a roof over our head. Sarah's getting through treatment and uh, we have twins upstairs going to sleep. Well, hopefully they'll, they'll be going to sleep there quite a few minutes ago. So, well, yeah, this, all's good. Uh, this is an all-inclusive podcast, so whenever they decide that they want to join in, they might. So the fact that you left and went to uh, America, what was the reason for you to go to the States? Um, if you could maybe give people a bit of a background. I was in St. Michael's College as a school teacher and I was heavily involved in rugby coaching. With the school, with the province of Leinster, I was helping out with their under-19s team for a number of years. I was coaching the Irish women's side as well for since 2009. So I've been with them for the guts of five years. And I was coaching AIL here and there. And uh, I got an opportunity to go to Yale, which was really appealing to me. Uh, the thought about going away through rugby was always something I dreamt of. 
but I think when Yale came was around education, uh, which was something I was very interested in, not just the rugby. I felt as a good opportunity and the timing was right for myself and Sarah. So we made the decision to head away after the Women's Rugby World Cup in France in 2014. And uh, here we are, uh, six years later. But we, you know, you, we've been on one hell of a, a roller coaster. We've had some brilliant times. and we're, We really have had some brilliant times. And there's times when you're missing your family. Um, you know, Sarah's family are very tight as are mine. They're, they're tight with each other. So uh, we miss family a lot. And then Sarah's been through some challenges and we've been through some challenges as a couple, um, which um, we're, you know, we're going through one at the moment. And it's just about being able to, you know, have a clear plan, um, be as positive as you can without being fake. You know, everything, you've got to be real and you've got to be optimistic. But at the same time, you got to just put one foot in front of the other sometimes and just get through the day. And, you know, we've had those days recently. Um, Greg hasn't been through any challenges. How's it going? Ah, good to see you, man. To get me through the day. Good to see you. Looking well. How have you been? How are you doing? Yeah, Greg. I just heard Greg drawing on about his issues. He's got none. What's ever happened to you? <laughs> yeah, what? what's wrong with you, Greg? You're grand. You're over in the state but you have been playing or been coaching rugby for for the last number of years and mm. you have the opportunity to go over there talk to me about just the kind of the decision making process and what was going through your mind and what what you guys kind of um spoke about in order to create this opportunity for yourselves uh it's a great question i think i was heavily involved in education i was a school teacher as well as she's laughing at me here um just go, you just be aware now that I'm not going to be able to answer any of these questions properly. No, you just have to be honest um, now. No bullshit. <laughs> yeah. No, I was, I, was, yeah, I was a school teacher in Michael's. And I really enjoyed teaching, actually. And very often when I was involved in rugby, I often thought, was I interested in the coaching or was I interested in facilitating a group and creating an environment, a learning environment? So I think the idea of going you know, to maybe a, a first division club in England wasn't really as appealing to me as it was going to a university somewhere like Yale where you're going to see how education is is operated at a really high level. And that's really, really appealing for me. So I think whether I'm in the classroom or whether I'm coaching rugby, it's about helping others. It's about improving yourself to try and make experiences better for people that you come into contact with. And as cheese as it sounds, if, if I'm going into Starbucks or, you know, if I'm meeting anybody, I always want to feel that I can have a good impression on somebody and, and just make them feel good about themselves. It's important to me because I think with any individual, there's so much, so much good underneath it all that sometimes just having somebody there who's not judging and you know, so I, I think coming to Yale gave me the opportunity to look at very good educators, very good teachers, and it gave me the opportunity to help, you know, mold young men um, into making good decisions outside of rugby. You know, at Yale, where I came, we always say that rugby is the engine for what we try and do with, with individuals. So you're trying to give them a really good experience where, you know, they're grateful for everything that, that they have. and you know, you don't want them to be entitled. You want them to be, you know, grateful for, for things. So 
I suppose you put that all into one big pot and that is kind of, I suppose, the foundation of the way I'd like to perceive my day is um, be organized, get on top of things, uh, become better at my job so I can deliver a better, I suppose, better message to players and you can facilitate that. Where you're just hoping people can have a good positive energy um, and enjoy the experience that they can have through yeah, it's through it's, rugby. It's interesting you say that because because um, like you you've done a lot in rugby already um, from a coaching perspective, and like you've coached all eight brackets. You've been part of the coaching ticket for USA in the recent World Cup, which I'm sure was a phenomenal experience. And now you're the head coach for um, Rugby United in um, New York, yeah. uh, and. Have you taken, have you got a specific philosophy of coaching? And do you kind of, do you take that with you where you go or do you adapt to the, to the environment? Because not every team is the same, right? And not every player is going to be able to do the same things you want them to do. Another, another very good question, Jesus. Uh, I think your philosophy of how you want to play the game stays pretty constant. And I think it's important that you profile the squad of players that you have and, and the environment that you're going into because the way that I want to play might suit the player group that we have. So it's, I think it's really important that when you go into any environment that you see what players are there, what their skill set is as a team and as a group of individuals, and then you're trying to find out what you can do to try and improve that group to be better. Um, and you have to be adaptive in that environment. So like... I go into certain places around America where you need to be quite prescriptive and you need to be quite detailed with, with basic instruction. But then you go into another environment where you're actually there to ask leading questions and have the players to understand what they're doing and to take ownership of it. I think sometimes as a coach, you just need to have that balance. Um, you have that balance right where the players feel like they're contributing to what we're building. I think it's also really important for me is, you know, um, I know my limitations. I've, I've become pretty self-aware around areas that I'm good at and more importantly, areas that I'm not very good at. So I make sure that I have staff around me who um, suit myself to get the best out of, out of the group. So whether that might be somebody who's very good around detail on, def on defense, for example, or somebody who's very good around a line out or somebody who's very good at... Um, the breakdown, whatever areas I feel, I, I think you're always trying to, particularly as a head coach, you're always trying to just give your team the best opportunity to succeed. And you need to be very aware that you can provide all of that yourself, that you need people around you who can, who can do that. So I lean heavily on, on my staff, really heavily. Um, I'm, I, uh, I employed, Sarah's just telling me that she's the staff. But yeah. you, you employ people who are going to do a better job than you, essentially. She's, she's the head of, head of operations. She's, she's the head. She's the CEO of the house. I tell you that much. Um, <laughs> no, I love it. Well, my daughter is, then Sarah is. But, yeah. Uh, well, that's, yeah, so interesting because, like, you know, you, you, look at, you look at really, really strong leaders anywhere, and they're always the last people to speak in the room. They're always the ones who kind of, yeah. They've got their, what did one fellow say is a, is a fellow over in Scotland. I was watching a documentary and he said the biggest thing, most important thing for him is that he's not the smartest person in the room when it comes to the board and when it comes to his and stuff. That he's got all yeah. other people who have more expertise than him in other areas. All he is is like a facilitator of people. 
Um, do you think that's, so I suppose you could say the same applies then to business, right? Like, I was looking I think it applies, I think it applies to everywhere. I think um, there's just so much waffle out there. And like sometimes I've, I've found myself waffling at times about what's a great environment, what, what is the leadership, what is a successful environment to look at. And I'm really conscious now about just making sure that I try and preach uh, and practice what I preach. So I think that guy, whoever that guy was, I think he's dead right. I think my job is to make sure that I have people around me who are more capable in certain areas than I am. And I need to just piece everything together to try and give the players the right um, opportunity, again, to win. At the end of the day, like where Yale is a holistic environment where you're developing individuals on and off the field, we'd like to do the same with Rugby United New York. And we've got a very holistic environment, but we're also a professional team where if we lose three in a row, I'm on a plane going back to Ireland. So you need to, again, have the balance right between that very holistic um, environment that you're looking to create and then very specific details around performance indicators for your team. So your players can own it, your staff can own it, and we're all going in the same direction. It's, it's corny, but it really is, I think, the Sarah's not going to be saying it's corny. But it is essentially no, what's needed. You need to just be very detailed, have good clarity, um, and have your players feeling that they're contributing, they're a part of what you're building. I'm sure it's the same with the workforce, that if they feel that they're contributing to, to where the company is going, well, then they'll give more emotion, more energy, they'll be more um, aware, and hopefully they'll produce better output. So I think rugby's the same. I think education's the same, and rugby's the same, same thing. Sarah's coming in here beside me. I personally like hurling myself. In the, the the trip and the, the transfer from Ireland to America, right? A lot's happened. Which we did from the time he was given his job description to the time, or, or you came to me saying, do you want to move to America? To, to when we landed was a month. Yeah. So Two like, weeks. So like the, the, the whole thing was like, it was a whirlwind, right? But since then, yeah. so much that, like you, you've created a family, which is amazing. And... Like oh, weird. you've got you've got two beautiful kids, Archie and Lana Rose, right? And Hard to believe because they took so long to get here. I thought it was you it's, know it's talk about that talk. because I suppose the, the the thing the thing I'd just like to touch on there is that for you guys would be lo lovely to just hear your story a little bit because you've got two incredible uh, characters <laughs> who keep you on your toes for sure. Yeah, we we uh, don't have children. Uh, yeah, we, we, we would have gone through a hell of a ride, really, to, to get Archie and Lana Rose here. Well, I think you know? that that was one of the main contributors to us not going back home, because when we moved here, it's like six weeks in, I had an ectopic rupture and ended up in emergency surgery. So, and then there's a whole lot of stuff that came after that. So I was instantly put through to, because I'd had a couple and another ectopic and another put through to fertility doctors so once we met that team i didn't really want to leave until it was done mm, okay. and this is how long it's taken us it took so. us it took us you know the guts of four years going through sarah going through her own well it would IVF. Be five years because it was six weeks after we moved 
Five years, yeah. So I love it. My husband and wife team are just correcting him all the time. Yeah, no, but it, <laughs> it, 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 eighteen years. Yeah, it was it was really tough, and I know that there might be people listening who are going through the same thing. Like we felt quite isolated. Um, it was it really tough. I I was away at work as well sometimes. There was one particular time I think yeah, was, we left all our mates and family and came yeah. over to. I was I was in Australia when when you got word of a of, of a loss. Um, a baby lost quite late on. Yeah, there was a couple I had to deal with on my own, but like, you know what those Irish women are like, you just get on with it. Yeah, you just, you just get on with it. What other choice do you have? Yeah. And you're not going to dwell because what, what good is that going to do? You have a choice, right? You, and I have no experience in this. And one day I'll, I'll, I'll have family and all that stuff and I'd love, love all that. Um, but here's, here's the thing is that what you guys are doing in it's it, the stereotype is you have to get on with it right but in saying that there's also the thing yeah. take the time to feel it and have the emotion and you're dead right in, in focusing and getting on with it um and that's all you can really do but there must be times where you're kind of going yeah you, you take on the emotion and you go right embrace the sadness of it and then it's like dusting yourself mm -hmm. off and going again. So how do you, how did you get your? Yeah, you know, I I'm terrible like that. I just I just the first four you don't you you just you're like okay because it's happened. I think the first three are the worst. The ones that we had at home were the worst because it's your first time getting pregnant. We were so excited, and you go and shopping with your mommy to get all the stuff that you need, and then for it to not work out, that was really devastating. And then followed by an ectopic that gave me Hashimoto's, the the chemo injection that they give you in Dublin to get rid of the the ectopic gave me Hashimoto's. gave me Hashimoto's. So that that was another another hill and then got pregnant straight away after accidentally and miscarried that one as well so it's just massive kicks kicks <laughs> all the way i know with no problem getting pregnant it was the sustaining um it was, but it, was, it was really tough like we went yeah. through we went through some dark days like there we was, stayed like we stayed positive throughout it all and yeah and there's stuff that you know i feel like fellas don't go through that the women go through so so it can be for the first three, it can be a little um, like for, for the women feeling like they have to get on with it to make everybody feel okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> so after that, like when I got to America, I was in that head, head space where I just wanted to get it done. I was like, we're, I'm, I'm never not going to have a baby. So I'm going to keep going until I get a baby, whether it be genetic or not. I was having a child. So getting a child... So I really was in the business mode for the first couple that happened in this country that I was just like, okay, well, yeah, it, you'd cry when it happened. I, I had what was called missed miscarriages. So it was always with a scan. Everything's fine until we went to the scan and there was no heartbeat. So, you know, in the scan thing, we would just go, fucking knew it. Excuse my French. I just knew it. You know your own body, blah, blah, Sarah, blah. Sarah felt it before scan. She and was we really would, nervous. I would be telling him something's not right or whatever but then after that when it became apparent that we were running out of time and all that kind of stuff that's like I had one major meltdown in the car park of the fertility clinic where we got a call saying that none of our embryos were normal that they were all abnormal and it takes three months to get them you're injecting yourself three times a day you're getting hot flashes that can put you down 
like it's just horrific and then get pregnant go through an egg retrieval with no anesthesia where they get each egg individually and then get pregnant and then lose the baby and then get more em embryos again and then get the call that they're abnormal you just i was like run me down i'm done i'm going to throw myself off a building and the girls not literally the girls in the in the clinic i have to say that the girls in the clinic were amazing they came running down to me and they're all arms around me and telling me how you know one of the girls put the first time i'd ever heard the word surrogate into my head because she said i carried for people that were in this fertility clinic you know there are always ways we'll get you more embryos we'll go again don't worry and they were amazing to me mm. and we got on so well we're already good friends now because we were there for so long every morning for bloods that they kind of did look at us uh, at us like we were fun and everything was fine so to see me collapse like that they were like oh jesus okay they're real people they have real feelings and this isn't a barrel of laughs every time they come in in the morning they're like morning do you get your coffee take me bloods will you you know so so there, there does come a time where you have to be real and let it all out. And then after that, it takes about a month, really, for something like that. You know, if you're, if you're pregnant three months, I gave myself a month to feel like a piece of shit, to cry and to see my friends and get out into nature. And then you pull up your zippers and you put your lipstick on and you get out there and start again. So, so it became a, a cycle. We just got used to it, didn't we? Yeah, for about four years. Wait, yeah, I can't. So then, obviously, we went down the surrogacy route. We found. Do you want to explain? Yeah, this girl contacted me on Facebook. She seemed lovely, um, and I thought I was being catfished. And you know, there are people out there that want to rent their wombs, and there are people out there that really want to help couples and. So yeah, we, we had to explain it to a lot of people, especially our, our um, extended families and stuff. You know, a lot, of people don't, a lot of people don't really understand what it is. And it's, you know, it's our genetic material. She's just going to carry it for us. And it was the hardest thing I've ever done to, to give that control to somebody else yeah. who you don't know and you don't fully trust. And you're just hoping that paying them is going to make them like do, do what they have to do to keep your child alive. It's crazy. What was the kind of the process that she met you over Facebook? There's a good friend of mine, Tisa, she set me up with a group of girls that helped me through all the crap and they were all going through the same thing. And then she started um, a Facebook group, which I help admin now, thanks to her. And it's just, hundreds and thousands of people all over the world coming together. You know, there are people that have tried for years. There are people that are secondary to fertility. There are people that are born with no wombs. There are people that have lost babies and want, don't want to go again. There's so many different reasons why they're all in there. And they all also get breast milk off new mothers to feed their babies then when they get it, if they don't. I, I pumped and got my own breast milk but not not much but like it's it was an honor to be able to feed them even for a little bit it was quite emotional and um, and the the girls start a milk group so this young one was in the milk group and told her story to my friend and she was looking 
to carry for somebody. And my friend said, I know somebody that you might want to meet. And so she introduced us on inbox and I was like, yeah, right. Hilarious. Greg was like, absolutely not. Why would you get someone to carry your baby when you keep getting pregnant? And the doctors were awful in that sense that they were like, there's nothing wrong with you. Keep going. One of these times will work. And I was like, yeah, but I'll be. But it was, it was like, <laughs> I, I think you could have had maybe like 11 miscarriages. Yeah. And then a and chemical. All, all in oh, from three ectopics. being in Ireland and then kind of coming over to America was just a good time. You know, I, I'd been in a job for a fair bit. I was ready to do something different. So, you know, we had friends who were getting, were having kids, which was fantastic. But kind of we were still like that couple who were trying and couldn't. So we just felt it was good to maybe head to America for a year just to, you know, have a different scene and maybe love to get pregnant. And we, we got pregnant pretty much straight away, as Sarah said. And <laughs> we actually, didn't even know. We were she, had, she had to have an operation after four weeks of being here. And pretty much from that moment until she got diagnosed with cancer um, in January, it's, it's just been, for Sarah, it's been really tough. Um, Do you ever rush me to the hospital? This this girl that I'd met in a bar, I didn't even know her, and we met once for a coffee. And I was texting her saying I wasn't feeling well, and she came and got me, and I was out of it, belly full of, full of blood. Greg had a rugby game, and she rushed me to the hospital and gave most of my details and stuff. You know, born Halloween's easy to remember, <laughs> and, <laughs> and essentially saved my life because like there was something happening inside me that I didn't know was happening and I was just like uh she saved my life bringing me to the hospital was mad I was Irish on, woman go I on was, the Shelley I was, I was on a, I, was, I, I remember you ringing me up and you couldn't speak yeah you were grunting down the phone so like we've been on it like I, again I've been away so much at work but Sarah's been through so much of this pretty much so where where we where I was saying to Steve there was it, our journey was called an independent it's an indie so it's the hippiest way that you can do things where you have all your lawyers in place and you don't necessarily have an escrow, but that's a great idea because us not having one cause loads of troubles and just trust wise on the other side. Um, and the, most people go through an agency, which is, I feel is a very, from my experience with other girls tell me it's very, you're very separated from the whole thing. So I don't know which is harder, not, living in the house with the girl you know which I was trying to do but we just didn't know them and didn't didn't communicate they were very young and I spent probably like in total like two months over there like a, a two-week stretch and then a week stretch in someone else's house is carrying my baby it was mental in yeah. Florida yeah so um there's there are lots, so many ways to do it but I I don't think I would do the independent way again because there's no there's no in-between man that you can lean on. So it all fell on me. And if anything went wrong, it was my fault. So, so many misunderstandings like that, just because of the age weren't understood, you know, we had to wait for her to turn 21 so we could use her as a surrogate. So you're essentially, I was essentially babysitting somebody that was growing my children. <laughs> so it was, it was horrific, it was horrific. And still, kind of is horrific. When you say it, when you say it like this, yeah. I'm like, I'm just hearing her talking to you, and I'm like, jeez, I can't believe. But aren't we supposed to be talking about rugby? No, we're not. No, okay. So what I think is incredible there is that you took a kind of leap of faith. Like, when when did you guys agree to each other and kind of go right? This we're going to do this. I think some of your best ideas are when you're forced into making a decision. You go after what you want. 
whether you like the journey or not, the end result was, as Greg says, eyes in the prize. That's what we wanted. So we had to go through hell to get there. Incredible. And, and then we threw in too, just in case it didn't work and got yeah. to. So yeah. it was it's great to be able to tell so our now, parents. Now you've got uh, Archie and Lana Rose, who are yeah. the stars of your Instagram. And <laughs> good job, you. No one ever remembers her name. I feel like I'm growing up with them a little bit, you know, which is <laughs> I, I haven't seen you guys in ages, but we've we've maintained contact. And just to see you kind of your your journey has been really interesting because obviously, Greg, you're you're coaching the rugby front, and then Sarah, you're even when your family and friends pop over, like they all get a, a, a place on the uh, Irish in America Instagram, which is incredible, right? Well, the, the kids, the kids, you can see them develop and you can see them grow. And now the fact that, Greg, you've had the last three or four months at home and been part of that whole process and getting to see parts of the whole setup that you <laughs> never, ever have gotten to see before uh, because you've got these two little uh, miracle babies, you know? Like, you've got these yeah. two little kids who I'd say you couldn't imagine life without them. I know, what would we do before they got here? It's so strange. I know, Jesus. Yeah. But I'm so grateful for COVID-19 for sending Greg to me after this shitty diagnosis. He's here 24-7 at my beck and call. What people don't mightn't realise, and I know you touched on it, is that so you, you worked your ass off and done everything you can to get two kids and two absolute gems. And then things are kind of working out to the, where you guys had planned. And then January 2020, you get hit with some pretty... Uh, crazy news. Could you yeah. talk about that a little bit? Well, I, I figured I've been pregnant so much that um, the when your milk comes in, you get mastitis sometimes. All the ladies out there now I'm talking about once. And, <laughs> and so I figured when I found a lump, that's what it was. Because I've had it before. And it's from when your milk comes in and, you know, and then you lose a baby or you have a baby, it, the milk gets stuck there sometimes. So I was going, ah, oh, I'll go. They do a little needle aspiration, get some antibiotics, be fine. And then I got a kidney stone and we moved house. So for two months, I, kidney stone. I know, I, so I was ignoring it. Kidney you know, stone. how young am I getting kidney stones? What a story. That was, turned uh, out to be, turned out to be all these things I was getting, styes, infections, geographical tongue, kidney stones. There was a massive tumor growing. So all of these things then made sense. Um, after I was diagnosed, but I, I went into the doctor after we'd moved, moved properly, finished moving Christmas Eve, and then had a real quick Christmas. <laughs> and then, um, yeah, I went to this gyno January and I didn't go for the ultrasound straight away. So all these things you hear, like go to the doctor straight away, I didn't. And here I am. So I'd say it would have been a different story if I had it gone when I found it first, which is probably November. And then, um, and I was just sitting in the office going, of course it's cancer. Of course it is. What next? Mm. Life. What next? But like, like everything else that we just, we took it on the chin. We were in there at the doctor and my mom. And he was like, your staging isn't completed. You've gone from stage two to three C. The next stage is four. We have to put you in a PET scan and see if it's all over your body because my chest lit up like a Christmas tree. Yeah, but it's important to note that they were originally extracting the tumor and while they were extracting the tumor was when they found the more nodes. the nodes. So 
they extracted 29 nodes. The sample worried about what they looked like, and 26 of them came up as positive for cancer. So, Legend, sorry, legendary doctors. Yeah. Legendary doctors changed the whole procedure when they were in there. When they were, when they was under the knife, they were like, okay, we're not doing it the way that we've discussed because this is happening. And they left me with the cutest, longest, cutest scar instead of taking everything off. They, I'm just so grateful for them. They're amazing. Greg's best friends, one of them. But, they take off. but <laughs> originally it was, and again, if I'm wrong, let me know. I'm likely wrong. But originally it was stage two yeah. and it was going to be extraction and radiation. They do and the, all of a sudden it went to they, stage. They do the stages, sorry, for Novia, they do stages by size of your tumor how many lymph nodes and if it's spread. So it, you're like going there first. It looks like I went in for the exam and the tech said to me, that looks like a tumor. And I was like, I there goes that. your job. <laughs> you can't say that to people. I remember. Then the doctor came in and was like, we're going to send you to a specialist. I was like, oh shit. But again, you would never think the worst. You would never, actually I do think the worst, but I just this time didn't really believe it. And it wasn't until I'd shaved my head and lost half my boobie that I believed it, you know, because it all happened so fast, seemed to happen so fast. And now you don't need to shave your head. Yeah, although it's freezing all the time. I feel sorry for you lads because people are like, take your head off, all your grind, your gorgeous red or whatever. And I'm like, my head's freezing. It's got nothing to do with Jews. My head is freezing. <laughs> Very liberating experience shaving their heads, you know friends of mine who cut their hair that short anyway but like it's very different when it's not a choice they recommend for you to shave it so that when your hair does fall out it's not as emotionally hard seeing big clumps of that hair. was my that was my my recommendation so sarah we shave i remember shaving. i was like i'm not i'm not losing my long hair in the shower but it was the after the first treatment it you know you'd grab your hair and it was coming out so i was like that's that just chop the shit off yeah that was um, tough you've You've been diagnosed with cancer. You um, are after having all these battles and trying to have the kids over the last number of years, right? Next thing you're, you're diagnosed with cancer. And what's your mindset? It's because here's the thing, and I, what I love about you guys is how real you are. And I, I love the fact that when you're on, uh, when you put things and I see your stories and stuff, whether it's family, friends, whatever, it's just you. Like you did this amazing, beautiful photo shoot as well before your operation uh, with the kids, which I thought was so important. That. that was last minute. My what? friend is amazing. Came over and was I like, let's see what happens. Yeah, Greg didn't I wasn't happy at the start of that, but like, then I appreciated the art of what yeah. Sarah was doing. He said, he said, sorry to me. Oh, you put, you put them on the internet. Oh my God. And I was like, can you say my Instagram is private, relax. But he didn't like it at all because you know, when you're married to somebody, regardless of, of how good or bad your relationship is, you need to chat about it, really. And I don't think I did. But he said sorry to me by blowing one up and putting in a frame. <laughs> I wasn't happy at the time. I that. When I saw them, I was like, Sarah, take them down. Yeah. I want people to see that. That's people to see what, though? And that's the thing. is, is now did he? But see, from, from, <laughs> from my perspective, I just thought it was like a, an unbelievable way of kind of documenting the journey of what you're about to go through and stuff. And that's what, that's where I kind of saw it. I, I find it powerful. Yeah. I, I thought, it, I thought it, like, yeah, tell me about that. I just felt, well, it was, la it was all last minute. My friend was an amazing photographer and she was coming to visit me and she said, do you want to do a few pictures or 
I don't know how the conversation started, but like the bathtub was just, let's just chop all the heads off these flowers and throw them in the bath. And then the babies getting in the bath was just because they wouldn't leave me alone. Mommy at the door. Yeah. And we were getting flowers and chocolates and things from loved ones. And, and they were, honestly, I lo obviously you love a flower. They're gorgeous. But getting the flowers in the first week made me feel like I was dying. Okay. It, it made me feel like, shit, I'm really sick. People keep sending stuff. <laughs> and, and I guess I didn't want to see myself as a sick person because, you know, I have Hashimoto's and I have lupus. And my endocrinologists always say to me, like, you're, not only do you have an immune system, you have an amazing immune system that's battling really hard for your quarter of a thyroid that you have compared to everybody else's. Where I would always say, oh, I've no immune system or my immune system shit, but actually it's amazing. So I've been really grateful to my body for keeping going through this because it's a lot. The chemotherapy is a joke. It's so tough. And you just have to be thankful that I'm standing on my body's able to do it. You know, it kills. The first chemotherapy kills 27% of people or something. Greg, on one side, you're seeing your wife and life partner. And then on the other side, Sarah, you're going through it potentially. What's going through your head? Is it like, I need to just keep going, just keep going, it'll pass, it'll pass? No, I think we're both pretty positive. And when I wouldn't feel positive, Greg would be positive for me. And I don't think you've had any moments like that where you've needed to be back. It's very positive. Will you turn the bacon off, will you? Bacon's off. It's not it's on high, a spanner. His eyesight's terrible. <laughs> yeah, but no, I'm not saying I'm not saying you're not positive. I'm just saying there's there's two two ways of looking at it. So he's he's like, I gotta look after her, and then you're got I gotta fight this. And yeah. Oh, we're going to be fine, was yeah, our eyesight. Absolutely, absolutely. Mindset. Yeah. So like that that's the thing is that you're you're doing your role and focusing on the fight and Greg's doing his role. I, I still have to I still obviously have to work. So like I still would put in probably maybe six, seven hours a day ish. Uh, still working. So we have help who we have to have help in here to help with the kids and then obviously That was I'm so grateful for all our friends. Like again, that girl that um introduced me to the surrogate, Tisa, she's <laughs> mentioned twice. <laughs> she um, set up a GoFundMe for us uh, and just like you know you're so grateful to people who do things like that but we were we were a little about the GoFundMe until the bills come in and you're like we are absolutely screwed our insurance for some reason was in a what's the word well we just changed jobs place. yeah we changed jobs and we had like temporary insurance temporary whatever it's called low insurance just when i was diagnosed of course so my surgeries weren't weren't covered and stuff like that and like doing that for us and everybody donating made me feel so loved and i thought it was going to be i thought it's going to be so cringe and i thought i was going to be like oh gosh people are going to be thinking this and that but really when it comes down to it this is my life my mortality is being tested and all of these people coming out of the woodwork, like people who don't even know, people that like you haven't spoken to in years, donating to this GoFundMe so we can have childcare because the first and foremost problem was we're going to need care for the babies because full time because I'm, I'm going to need to recover. And that's a really hard thing for me, no matter about babysitters and girls that have helped us in the past and stuff. 
it's really hard to hand over full-time mammy to somebody else. So that that's well, another kick in the teeth. Greg's full-time mammy now. <laughs> but it's just about getting getting that balance right. So I had a job that still worked. Yeah, so. our 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 but our the first and foremost was the children having care. Yeah. I know you're there and I'm still here. And I do have them every day and we play every day, obviously, because it's all over the internet. But, <laughs> but that was our problem. I, I wasn't worried about me. I wasn't worried about if I'm going to get through this or what's going to happen. We were worried about them not being cared for properly. So we had this lovely girl move in with us and helped us through COVID. She's leaving now. <laughs> but it was amazing. Because during COVID, you couldn't come and go. Yeah. You know? So like when, we, when this first came about and Sarah was diagnosed, I was still coaching and I would be away a lot and I'd be coaching a lot and we'd have somebody who'd come into the house while I was away just in case anything happened with Sarah. Yeah. So when COVID happened, it meant, that, it meant that somebody had to either be here full time or we couldn't have anybody. So this girl was prepared to move in. We and, she had uh, babysat for us before, so she, we knew her. Yeah, she was, Otherwise, really it probably cool. wouldn't have happened. But she moved yeah. in. Perfect. Great. That's it. Yeah. So we were. She and so it's it's a case. You're now coming to the final chemo session tomorrow. Tomorrow, amazing. Yeah. And then you move yeah, to the next stage. Then after that, is it? Yeah, I've got as far as we know, twelve weeks of daily radiation. They, they tell you eight to 12 weeks, but then I saw, you know, the way I took a picture of the computer screen on the sly when the doctor left the room and it had like all the information about it. And the I, I, didn't and read, stuff. I didn't read that. <laughs> I did not. Yeah. Um, but the same thing. Oh. I'm here. Completely, for, I've completely forgotten what it's from. Radiation. Oh yeah, I read that. See, chemo brain. Like, no, seriously, it's, it's a real thing. Like, I would just forget somebody's name that I know really well, David. So um, they had down they had down 10 to 12 weeks for me. So I was like, oh shit. So that's what I'm keeping in my head. But my doctor did say to me, it can be eight to 12 weeks. I'm hoping for the, la the latter, but I don't want to, like they, I've got neuropathy in my fingertips now, which is gross. And they, they were like, we'll lessen your dose. And I was like, don't lessen my dose because if this comes back, I'm going to blame myself forever. So whack me with it. And then we'll deal with the recovery after because lessening the dose and missing. Um, my doctor gave a, an amazing little analogy. Um, my brother came to the doctor with me. Oh, you, you were away, were you? Yeah. My brother and my friend Rachel came to go over the PET scan results. And he said, it's like one of those Ginny Joes off them. What are they called? <laughs> the dandelions. Mm. The Ginny Joes. It's like one of them in your garden. And you don't know where it is. It's blown somewhere in your garden. So we have to kill all of the grass in your whole garden to get rid of that one dandelion Ginny Joe. Is it dandelion? Or I think dandelions are Ginny Joe's. Yeah. Remember you got me in the mouth. Yeah, that? I do, yeah. So <laughs> I remember that video. And I'll do it again. So my hands are all swollen and sore at the moment. I can't do anything with them. It's like having slippers. What's your uh, what what advice would you give somebody now like that what you guys have gone through you were focused on having a baby and you did everything you could to get a baby. And, and what I loved about that is that you didn't rule anything out. Everything was on the table. Um, yeah. That's the best opportunity, right? And now your approach to the chemo is like, just hit me with this because I want to, I want to eradicate it and I want to give myself the yeah, best. Yeah. So what kind of advice would you give somebody who is 
maybe finding things a little bit challenging, a bit worried, a bit frightened, or a bit scared, or looking to the future? What, what advice would you give them when they come up against kind of hardship or, or tough times? To take help, because I, I find it difficult to take help. It's like take the compliment. I don't know if it's an Irish thing. When somebody says, God, you look lovely, you go, fuck off. You know, you can't, you have to take the help. Take the help, because I'm only, I'm only learning that now through the cancer. And I wish I had been more open about our, our struggles and stuff before, because it really does help. It helps me reading other people's stories or other people going through things like that. Like, it really helps to share. So share and take help. And like when you need help, ask for help because there's like people who have come out of the woodwork with us, as I said, mm. and like dropping around dinners and stuff. And it's so difficult to get dinner ready for babies a couple of times a day. Guilty. And yeah, like Greg's, Greg can cook, he's been lying. And he can make pasta without it feeling like rocks in your mouth. So he, I'm never cooking again. People have just been amazing. Our friends have been amazing and you need to, get that community around you. Yeah, but before that, when it came to us losing the babies early on, when Sarah first mentioned to me even the thought of IVF, I was like, no, no, not doing it. We're gonna, we'll be fine. And then when IVF didn't work, we tried that like three or four times. They all worked. And surrogacy was an option. I didn't know, my, how does it work? So obviously I knew then it would be me and Sarah, it's our egg. I was like okay with that because the next thing afterwards would we were like adoption. I'd say. We, we were like 27 weeks pregnant and he was like is the baby gonna look like her at all <laughs> so people don't no Greg you did he asked me was the baby gonna look anything like the carrier and it's impossible there is no DNA left either side but they are questions that people need to ask. I would have asked that question, to be honest with you. I don't know. Ask that question. Ah, yeah. stop speaking so up. So I, I didn't. I didn't realize. Obviously, like it stays. Like your your kid pretty much goes in into a, it goes into an oven essentially. Yeah, a golden uterus. And it stays in there, and she is she is the way we're all to house the development. Is that right? Yeah. Yes, yeah, so it's crazy. And then, like, so I think to Sarah's point is. Um, Ask for help, learn about things, particularly whatever you're going into. So don't just like blank it off, read about it, research it. Although lots of people have sent me lovely cancer books, but I can't read them. It's like, I don't really like. You cry? No, no, that's the Dear Friend book. That one, oh, I have to read a page a day. If you need to cry, read this book. <laughs> a friend of ours sent it to me. Um, Jimmy's woman, Amanda, sent it to me. And it's, I've sent it on to several people that were going through the same as me because it's amazing. It's letters from all around the world from women who've had breast cancer and they're writing a letter to you, the person who's just been diagnosed. And it's amazing. And every single letter is amazing. I'm going to write one and add it in. So, I mean, you can get it on Amazon. It's really cheap as well. It's like 11 quid to send this book to somebody who's going through hell and it's gonna, like, I can't read the page, I'm crying because it's so uplifting. And the women are amazing. And I wish I had dress and phone number so I'd ring them and say, thanks, yeah. love you. Yeah. Like, it's amazing. You just, every single book is a different personal, very personal letter that somebody else wrote. Who knows what you're going through, it's amazing. If you were to give somebody a gift, what would it be? I think the gift of listening is very important to make the correct, like obviously, even for me as a rugby coach, 
you look at a lot of data analysis, uh, you watch a lot of game footage, but I think in order to make a complete decision that's one that you're really happy with, I think it's important to listen and you know, talk to people who've been through listen what to you've her, been Greg. through. Well, it depends. <laughs> so like if it's if it's rugby, I have I have mentors I talk to and I listen a lot. If it's to do yeah. pretty much anything around the house or with cancer. And the first the first you. thing the first thing I did was Google I'm not Google search engine Instagram breast cancer three C and I've met some really good friends through it, like mm. that we send each other stuff and we're there to chat about the scary things that happen to you during chemotherapy because like shit your nails can fall off. Like I didn't know that, you know? And so you go to some girl, did this happen to you? And they're like, Yeah, this happened and this happened, but this helps and this helps. And these are strangers. Yeah. So listening. Yeah. Li very important. Yeah. And taking that advice. Uh, oh, listen. Listening. Listening. <laughs> Listening is very important. And then I think being able to take all that information and making the correct decision, whether that, again, whether that's rugby, whether it's cancer, or it's making something in the kitchen, I think to make a better decision, you need to take in as much piece of information as you can. I think we've gotten good at that. And I've, I've, I've actually brought that, I've talked to Sarah this recently. Now I've brought that into my day job where I thought I was pretty good at making decisions. I think I'm better now because I'm actually looking at things slightly more analytically and also looking at things and looking for help and, and asking people for advice. I think that, that's, been a, that's been a good thing for me. And, and I think everything's a learning curve. Being self-aware. Yeah. Well, what's, what's encouraging though is, is how you guys have gone about this and it like from from the outside looking in you haven't um uh, shied away from it you brought it up front you brought it into your everyday you've made a part of your kind of your your social aspect and keeping keeping in touch with people and i'm sure there's like the social side of things that's only the the headline as i call it nobody knows the content and the detail behind it yeah but i think i probably wouldn't be so sorry but no i probably wouldn't be so open with it if we were living at home it's that you know, there's the hundred people that you have a home that want to know what's up. You don't have to talk about all that shite because they've seen it. So you can talk about the more important things then when you do chat. Yeah. And and that's funny, the more important things, like and for them, the most important thing would be you. And then for you, it's the most important thing is what's going on. How is Saturday night? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> what am I missing? <laughs> Sarah, Sarah's been, Sarah has been... You know, you say you do stay very uh, regularly, which has impressed me. Is you're always saying how lucky you are in one sense. So lucky. Which is crazy when somebody you know is going through chemotherapy and she's she's got a bad dose of it. That you're still lucky and you're grateful and we have a plan and people aren't so lucky as we are. Yeah, like so. the people that were going through IVF or IUIs or any kind of fertility treatment, getting diagnosed with cancer during that halts it all and also puts you into early menopause that's your storybook on that closed for a genetic child and then you have to like it's the hardest thing on the planet that people have to go through and then you know so not having those two babies and going through this has made it a lot easier and i feel really lucky that it can always be worse and if you were to if you were to say to say lana rose and archie in a in a couple of years time right uh, when you look back at all this and you're kind of laughing about the times that like you you felt like you're mommy threw up in the car do you remember <laughs> yeah, so like when when you laugh about the challenges and the dark times that you've gone through right um like what what do you think the lesson is going to be for them 
Well, I'm actually keeping, uh, my mommy gave me a journal book. My mommy and me used to write to each other when I left. Actually, it started when she had her hip replacements and then climbed Kilimanjaro. Uh, didn't lick it off stone, you know what I mean? So <laughs> I kept this journal and it would go back and forth. And then she bought me a journal. So I've journaled everything for them to read. And hopefully they will get the same out of it that we did, that you don't, you don't take, take things for granted. And um, happiness is a choice. It, I, I, to say one thing, and I'm only noticing, let's say the last couple of weeks, for Sarah to have gone through what she's gone through and to not have her mother or father or her immediate family, whatever about my family, whatever my friends, but not having them to be able to call in every day and just yes. put their hand on Sarah's hand and say, you know what, it's all right. Let them make you a cup of tea. Because of COVID, you know, all of our family had to cancel trips out. And also That's all nice. of our friends here couldn't come into the house either. So I think in hindsight, it's forced us as a four and, you know, uh, Alyssa is an ex extension that she helped look after her kids mm -hmm. obviously during the COVID was to just be really, really tight together at an early age. Um, like I'd be away all the time and I'd be working all the time. And, you know, as, as dreadful as COVID is and it is, the opportunity was for us to spend this time together and for me to support Sarah for once because she's been supporting me as a rugby coach for like the last 15 years where I'm away all the time. And I work on social hours and I miss family events and... You know, so it definitely takes a, to a, to yeah. a toll on it's your relationship. Us, so yeah. when, like, the being away does, and Greg being home, like, has made us realize why we became best friends in the first place. Yeah, and I can't wait to get back out there again and get away from her. <laughs> yeah. That's all right. You have to come with me maybe next time. No, I love that. I think, yeah, uh, and what I've noticed as well, Greg, is the guitar is coming out a lot more now as well. On uh, uh, the social oh my media. god, listen, get some new songs, will you? Well, like, the thing is, this he was right? born in the 70s, god help him. So, firstly, the thing is, this what COVID has, re has really for me personally, I look into other people's lives Music taste. and I look at people who I admire, and they're so comfortable, I think showing vulnerability is actually a really positive yeah. powerful tool so i sing or do something with my kids every night of the week when i'm here and i've always played the guitar and i said you know what we, we, we've been saying them since they were born every night yeah i'm like, like i was like you sometimes know it gets too much and we're like we yeah. need to chill out here because they don't even care about this they want to go sleep <laughs> so i just started recording myself at night to do that all the time and I started putting some of them up and you know what is like, that's me, that's who I am. You know, it doesn't change how serious I am about my work. It doesn't change me as a, as a family guy. It, it just means that this is me and I like playing the guitar and so what. And it's a bit of crack, isn't it? It's a bit of fun. So we do that most nights. So we just started recording at the odd time. Sarah gets involved when See, she can. We, we have very, we have very um, old fashioned lullabies that have gone through my mommy's family and our family that I grew up with. And I taught them to Greg when we were dating. And I was like, you're gonna sing this to your daughter one day. So yeah. get on it. Do you remember me going, that's not it, Greg. You're getting the sentence wrong. Yes, I do. And now he, sings, I do. Now he sings to the. <laughs> so I stop lullabies and I just go for like, 
60s and 70s songs pretty much weird there's, there's a beautiful there's a beautiful video that you guys put out there where the two of you are singing i think it was the, it was a year anniversary that was the lullaby that was literally singing to the babies and he yeah. recorded it john prine stunning absolutely stunning she's, she's a singer man like, no, she's brilliant. Brilliant. you can harmonize and everything you've got the whole record bang like it's unreal just sarah keep doing what you're doing and keep fighting the good fight and keep staying positive thanks babe okay because love what you're doing out there and um i've i've no doubt like you're you're inspiring tons of people uh just by being yourself so just always keep real and stay authentic to yourself because greg always says that feels that's what's that's what's class feel that way <laughs> yeah and, and greg on your well, take it. so so good to see that you're doing brilliantly in the rugby and you're getting the just rewards that you should you should have always been getting and uh, that's down to hard work due diligence and a good good support network between yourself the real ceo <laughs> but um i'm delighted to see you doing so well pal and and just thanks man. personally like seeing and chatting to the two of you has been class and uplifting for me. So I, I've no doubt uh, people listening to this will, will have to say no. Fucking rugby! Steve, it's great to talk to you. I look forward to seeing you now when you, when you visit. Yeah, I'll get a haircut as well between now and then, all right? Yeah. <laughs> no, it's lovely. The law of rocks. All right. We'll see you later, bud. If this is your first time listening, please subscribe to the What Makes You Tick podcast and leave us a review and let us know what you thought of this specific episode. Tag and share us on Instagram as well. All you need to do is visit whatmakesyoutick.net where you can leave a comment, you can send me an email, or you can visit me on Instagram at What Makes You Tick Pod or again at Twitter at Stevie Bratz. Until next time, folks, take care of yourselves and each other. <laughs>